The year was 1918 in the small town of Alton, Illinois, which is a suburbs of St. Louis. And on a particular day, February 12, I believe it was, Robert was born into the Wadlow family. His birth, at his birth, his height and his weight were normal. Everything checked out. He was the perfect baby. But as time passed, there was something that they began to notice that was a little bit odd about little Robbie. Little Robbie wasn't so little. In fact, he grew and grew and grew. By his first birthday, he was three and a half feet tall, over a foot taller than everybody else about his age. His fast growth simply continued. When he was enrolled in kindergarten, he was exactly my height, which isn't tall, but for a kindergartner, that might be a little intimidating for you teachers out there. Anybody taught kindergarten here in the room? He was averaging about four and a half inches a year, sometimes more. Good luck keeping him in clothes that fit. They had to make special desks just to accommodate him. And by the end of his high school time, when he graduated as a senior in high school, he was eight feet, four inches tall, as you can see in some of these pictures. His ambition was to practice law. Can you imagine that? coming over top of the witness stand. Were you or were you not there on March 6th? (gasps) Whatever you say. Of course, that never came to fruition. Instead, he kind of became a celebrity of sorts, traveling with the Bailey Brothers Circus and various speaking engagements. And he was, in fact, sponsored by some shoe companies who would custom-make and supply him with his size 37 shoe. What made Robert so tall? Well, he had hyperplasia of his pituitary gland. To put it simply, he had a high level of growth hormone that never stopped. Until the day that he died, he was growing and growing and growing. It did cause challenges for him. He had to wear leg braces, and that was back in the day when everything was metal and hinges and all the rest. And on one particular occasion, it wasn't wearing just right, and his leg brace was faulty, and he got quite a sore and a blister on his leg. And because of a parasitic infection, and because of his autoimmune disorder, he finally passed away, but he was only 22 years old. But upon his death, he was 8 feet 11 inches, almost 9 feet tall. Tallest person in recent history. In 1986, a life-size statue was erected in his hometown of Alton, Illinois, and you can go there to this day. And there's about 10 other replicas in museums and Ripley's Believe It or Nots in various places. And you can go up and just see how tall this Robert was, who was known as the gentle giant. Now today in scripture we're going to read about another giant, but I don't know if we can describe him quite so kindly. He wasn't particularly known for being gentle. 
You know what I'm referring to. It's the very well-known story of David and Goliath. And while we don't know his exact size, it's estimated that he was about nine and a half to perhaps even 12 feet tall, depending if you take the normal cubit or the royal cubit. Either way, he was a big guy. Metaphorically speaking, this morning I want to look at what giants you are facing. Perhaps it's an issue of divorce. Your marriage is breaking up. Perhaps there was a class that you had to pass, and it's not looking like it's going to happen. Perhaps there's some financial giant that looks like it's going to crush you. Perhaps there's a lifestyle habit, and you can't seem to give it up. Perhaps a lump has been diagnosed as malignant. Perhaps your child's in rebellion. Perhaps it's a serious surgery, and the odds are not good. What giants are you facing today? This morning, I want to look at five. There we went. There we're back. Five keys found in Scripture of this well-known story about facing the giants of life. Five giant lessons, if you want to call them that, worth remembering that I feel are practical, biblical, and doable. Five keys I believe will bring you hope and comfort and direction and courage. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Thank you, Susan, for reading that for us. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And while you're turning there, you may recall that leading up to this story... Saul has been doing things his way and not God's way. And by the time we get to chapter 15, the Lord is grieved that he made Saul king. And so in chapter 16, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, and after seeing all seven of David's older brothers, older siblings, seemingly taller, he asks if there's any more, in which there is. Little David is out with the sheep, but he's just a lad. Certainly, you can't consider him. Many suppose David to be somewhere about 16, perhaps. Yet when he comes, he is the one chosen of the Lord. And he is anointed to be Israel's next king as a teenager. And so we find ourselves now in 1 Samuel chapter 17 where we come across this story that we all know so well. David and Goliath. Thought to have happened the same year as his anointing. So he's still a young man. And so let's pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we'll begin in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and the Israelites stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And we're really just talking about maybe 300-foot-high hills and this nice little playing field down below. And so we read on, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named 
Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come to the line, come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly terrified. Now, I want to give you an idea. This is rather pathetic in comparison to all the props that Chris brought this morning, which he did a wonderful job. Last time I brought a, some props. I threatened to cut Judy's harp. This time I'm threatening to fall on it. I'm about all of 5'10". <clears throat> Now, if Goliath was about nine and a half feet tall, conservatively speaking, this is not quite, maybe here is where that guy was in the first part of the story. But Goliath at nine and a half feet would be more like here. Send me a man! Now, if he's 12 feet, his feet are on that floor. Which one of you? I can see you all very well. Who wants to fight me? <laughs> Who thinks you're tough? Tall, big. Come on. Bring it on, he says. His upper armor weighs about 125 pounds. But we don't know how much his helmet weighs. We don't know how much his, his things on his legs weigh. And then he's got the shield. He's got about 200 pounds of body armor. And he's going out there every day. In fact, verse 16 tells us he comes out morning and evening saying again and again and again, when are you going to send somebody out? When are you going to send somebody out? Are you scared, you ninnies? It's very clear that the Bible writer wants us to understand Goliath is intimidating. He's big. Biceps like tree trunks. Veins popping out of his neck. And for 40 days, that's like a month and a half almost. Day after day after day after day. Send out a man. Find the tallest, the strongest, the best you've got. Now let me ask you this question. 
I imagine it'd be quite frightening. I imagine it'd be quite intimidating. And clearly the odds would be stacked against anyone foolish enough to face him in battle. But whose battle was this? Who should go out to meet him? Who is Israel's best, their biggest? I find it very interesting that 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23, describes Saul as taller than all the people from his shoulders upward. And after all, that's what the people wanted anyway, right? We want a king like everybody else. We want a warrior. We want a leader. So as the biggest, as the leader, Saul, this is your fight. Well, let's not be rash. I don't want to just rush into anything. I mean, let's talk about this. Get along with everybody else. And the Bible writer makes sure we understand when Saul, verse 11, and all the Israelites. Saul's included, and he is dismayed. The word here, broken down, is shattered. He's broken, and he's greatly, exceedingly afraid. So he comes out, and everybody just kind of scatters. We don't trust this guy. What if he just comes lunging at us? What if he gets impatient? I don't want to be the one standing out there at the front of the pack. They knew nobody could overcome him. They knew this was a hopeless situation. They knew that human strength was not enough. They needed survival tip number one. Are you ready? Five survival tips. Survival tip number one. Don't grow your giants by feeding them your fears. Don't we tend to do that? There's a person or a pressure or a worry. Maybe it's job-related or it's kids-related or spouse-related. It involves money. It involves debt. Maybe it involves embarrassment. Maybe it's an addiction. It's shame. It's hopelessness. Maybe it's a doctor's report or a lab or a test or a prognosis. Maybe it involves the unknown, some unfamiliar territory, something uncertain. And we rehearse and we worry in the morning and we rehearse and we doubt in the evening, day after day after day, and we spend all of our time calling up everybody we know, telling them and rehearsing all the ways that this is a hopeless situation, woe's me. And we feed our giants our fears and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And to make matters worse, we pray. Say what? Yes, we pray. And you know how we pray? Dear Lord, please, you know how I can't overcome this. You know I've tried so many times before. You know how this is never going to work out. You know what this person said and that person said, and it's a hopeless situation. And they go on and on and on and on. We go on and on and on and on. And we never get to the point in our prayer where we're claiming the promises of God. I mean, to stop those kind of prayers... Humble yourselves before God? Yes. Realize your weaknesses? Yes. But then cling to the power of God Almighty. Amen? Claim His power, His strength, His guidance, His protection, because He has promised it. Pray things like, Lord, your word says in Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you 
because he trusts in you. Lord, I need your peace today. Help me trust you. I'm claiming that promise today, and you stand on that promise. Lord, your word says in James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, anyone, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. Lord, I need your wisdom today. I don't know what to do. Show me what would be best, and you claim that promise. Lord, your word says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Lord, my strength is gone. My strength is spent. So today I'm clinging to your strength, your power, your might. Key number one, when facing the giants of life, don't grow your giants by feeding them your fears. Claim the power of Christ and all his wonderful promises. I was praying through the Psalms just this last week, and I came across some, and I prayed through those. I came across this verse. I didn't realize it appeared three different times, the same wording. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. And so I prayed back, Lord, I feel cast down. Lord, my soul is weary, but I continue to hope in the Lord. No matter what I face, help me to continue to praise your name. Pray promises back. Don't feed giants with your fears. So now David enters into the story. He's introduced in verse 12, and then in verse 13, it talks about his three oldest brothers are old enough to go to battle, but surely not David. He's too young. So he's still out with the sheep. But we're going to pick up the story now in verse 20 of chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, verse 20 now. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him, his father. This is seemingly a very unassuming verse. But there's a lot here. Think about this. David, as a teenager, anointed as Israel's next king, He doesn't go get measured for a suit. He doesn't go buy a new car to fit the part. He doesn't parade himself at all. He simply waits on God and his timing and whatever his plan is, I don't understand, but I'm just going to go back and I'm going to tend the sheep. And the other thing that strikes me about this seemingly insignificant verse is on this particular day, David's out with the sheep like usual, and then dad has his special request, and on this particular day, he rises up early, leaves the sheep with a keeper, and he goes, and he has no idea what he's going to face that day. No idea. He probably has no idea there's a Goliath. He probably has no idea what's happening on the front lines. He has no idea, but somehow he is spiritually prepared because every day he is spiritually prepared. And so when this giant is presented, as oftentimes they come presenting themselves to us, unannounced, no time to prepare or prep or be ready. But David is ready. 
unbeknownst to him, it's going to be a normal day, a little adventuresome. I get to go for a walk through the pasture. It's about 15 miles, and so it'd take him maybe four hours or so. But if he starts out early, he could be there late in the morning. But as far as he's concerned, it's another day. So David rose early in the morning, verse 20, left the sheep with the keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them right on time, There was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And David's looking around, wondering, where's everybody going? Are we going to stand for this? Is this okay? Are we going to let this go? And so the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Yeah, 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 about the reward. God's character's on the line here. And the people answered in verse 27 in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Verse 28, Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart, for you've come down here to see the battle. You remember Eliab is the oldest, as it just stated there. He's the firstborn son of Jesse. He's the one that first walked out a chapter ago, and when Samuel saw him, probably because of his stature, probably because of His size, I don't know. He says, that must be him. That's the king. And God has to put his arm on Samuel's shoulder and say, he's not the one. Don't consider the height or the brawn or the muscle. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? On the heart. And so this same older brother has passed by. Before the day's up, he sees his kid brother with a whole horn of oil being poured out upon him. And so, feeling threatened, feeling insecure, perhaps jealous, he insults David. Where'd you leave those few little sheep anyway? What'd you do with all your chemicals? You put them back in the janitor's closet, David? What are you doing here? I know that you just, you just want to see the battle. I know you're prideful, you're arrogant. You're going to come out here like you're something big. What, what are you doing? Isn't it ironic 
that we accuse others of what is often our own problem? Yet it's the teenager that shows great maturity here. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and punch him in the nose. He doesn't stoop to his level and debase him with words. Rather, he gives us our second key when facing giants. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him, his brother, toward another and began to say the same things. Key number two, choose the battles that are worth fighting. The devil wanted to trip him up and get him involved in this dogfight that would send him home with his tail between his legs. End of story. And David doesn't try and justify his actions. He doesn't try and explain himself. He uses complete self-control and shows himself a master of his own spirit. He's not concerned with how he's perceived. He's rather concerned with how God's perceived. Friends, we need to choose our battles wisely. If everything is the most important, then nothing is the most important. Are you with me? And as a church, we need this key perhaps more than any of the others. Because if we don't watch it, all of our battles will be fought with our spouse, with our children, and with fellow church members. People that are on our team. While in the meantime, the devil's working overtime, wreaking havoc in our communities, and we're too busy fighting among ourselves to see or know or care. Choose the battles that are worth fighting. Continuing on, verse 31, now in the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man, man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, are you not, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Here we find our third key in defeating giants. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. So often when faced with giants, we forget what we should remember, and we remember what we should forget. We remember all of our defeats and forget all victories. Most of us could produce a failure list real quickly, but we're hard-pressed to name the specific victories. Whether they're great or small, every person here should have a list of victories, not what you've done, but what God has done. 
how God has worked in your life through your circumstances, made a way when there was no way. And it may be a huge victory from the past, or it may be a simple way that he provided for you yesterday. But you remember God's faithfulness in the past. I have seen Christ change the most hardened of hearts. That in my humanness, I said, there's no way. I have seen over again how God has worked out financial trials in our own lives, and right on time, the money just seems to appear, and and it's worked out. I've seen mission trips come to a dead end, and you say, I don't know what we're going to do. And somehow, miraculously, the Lord parts the waters. I've also witnessed him speaking to me over and over again through his word on the day that I needed just what he gave me. Equally miraculous. It's not just the big things, but everyday things. We should be able to have a thousand things we can praise him for and thank him for. And so David remembers God's faithfulness in the past. Key number three. But Saul, in his spiritual drought, he covers it up with a spiritual cliche. Go, and may the Lord be with you. In desperation after 40 days, in trying to save his own skin, he sees David as the only option. He speaks with confidence. I don't know what else we're going to do. We've been, you know, wringing our hands for days. We're just going to go for it. At the end of the day, even if we get taken captive, at least I won't be the first one gone. Verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor and put a bronze helmet on his head and also clothed him with a coat of mail. That's this idea of of all these little flaps that are hanging and they all come together almost like a fish's scales. And so the idea is no matter if you have a flaming arrow or anything, it's not going to penetrate. It can't break through. And so he puts all of that on top of David. And so David fastened his sword to his armor and he tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. And so he took them off. I mean, you stop and think about this. Saul is a 52 long. David is a 36 regular. (laughs) Saul drags out all this armor and he puts it on him and it just kind of swallows him like that suit coat that they messed up and it's just huge. And he drops that oversized helmet on his head, clunk, hanging sideways. And he says, I can't do this. I I, I can't. I can't function this way. I'm going to have to fight in my own armor. And he slides right out. That's exactly what he does. Key number four, fight in your own armor. You've heard this before. In fact, you've heard all of this before. It's a very well-known story, but knowing and hearing is different from applying and doing. If you're like me, you need to be reminded. Key number four, fight in your own armor armor. How are you still fighting in somebody else's armor? Who are you still hiding behind? What are you so insecure about? 
Did you know you can be 100% yourself and God can use you? He fashioned you, he formed you to be you. Sure, he still has some refining to do and praise God for that. But at the end of his refinement, he wants you to be you, not somebody else. He doesn't need another clone. He created you to be you. And he's refining you to help you be closer to the you that he created you to be. Don't cower behind somebody else. Be yourself. And so continuing on, verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from a brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Intimidation at its best. That's our major battle when facing giants, isn't it? When they intimidate us and we get all tongue-tied and we can't get our words out right. And think of the intimidation. Incredible size. Nine and a half, maybe 12 feet tall. A shield that could hide him. The latest and best in armor technology, maybe 200 pounds worth. His sword, longer than any of his opponents. Biceps that were enormous. A seasoned warrior, cursing like a sailor. A, sail, a sailor. And then there's this teenage boy. Young, inexperienced, let me guess, it's your first day on the job. Just leather sandals, his humble shepherd attire, no shield, no javelin, no sword. Just a staff, and is that like some kind of a toy, that leather strap thing? I mean, we have tank versus a bicycle. We have the USS Destroyer versus your Old Town Canoe. We have an F-16 fighter jet versus a hang glider. We have a smart bomb versus a coconut bomb. We have a machine gun versus some little gravel in the kid's pocket. This isn't a fair fight. And as Goliath brings down curses on David, you can be sure that everybody behind him is laughing and snickering and carrying on. And, hey, ho, yeah, ho, ho, ho. What is this, some joke? Are you serious? He's your best. And at this point, David doesn't even have an in. 
Goliath is covered head to toe. And even with precise accuracy, he couldn't break through. But David's exposed knees are not knocking. He's not intimidated. Because every giant, no matter its size, is a dwarf in comparison to the living God. Every giant, no matter the size, is a dwarf in comparison to the living God. The scoffers are absolutely right. This is not a fair fight. And so in a direct and assertive fashion that gets the attention of everyone, David states very plainly now, verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Only a boy in direct connection with the living God could have this kind of unwavering confidence in such circumstances. But when you spend time on your knees, giants become dwarfs. That's the final key. The secret to David's life, the key that led to every success hereafter, The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Key number five. Are you trying to fight your own battle? Trying to fight it your own way? Maybe you still have some tricks up your sleeve. You're going to outsmart them. You're going to outfox them. You're going to solve things yourself. You have some connections. You're going to pull some strings. Friends, you can, but God can. It's not your battle. In this great controversy, it's spiritual warfare, and we are no match. We stand no chance on our own. For us to overcome the battle must be the Lord's. By every stretch of the imagination, defeat may seem inevitable. But God is the God of the impossible. God can make a way when there is no way. God can turn the most certain defeat into a victory. And so David makes it plain to all that this is God's fight. This is God's battle. And Goliath has heard enough. And so verse 48, so when he, the Philistine, arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. I imagine he's just boiling, he's just seething, and he's listening, and he's, just, he's had enough, and he probably just, yeah, ah, I don't know. And it says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 648, in rage, Goliath pushed the helmet that protected his forehead and rushed forward. I just need to see this little kid. 
And he pushes his back in rage. He's going to go choke him. And David doesn't stand there waiting, but he charges after him. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. I imagine he throws his arms up as if he's been struck by blindness and he staggers a little bit and like that big oak tree that Chris has just cut down, he starts to fall. And you hear the thump in the valley. And all of a sudden, the scoffers on the other side are running for their lives. You know the rest of the story. David uses Goliath's own sword, and you can finish it this afternoon. But then in verse 40, 41, it says, And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. What giants are you facing this morning? Is there a challenge or an uncertainty that's overwhelming? Does defeat seem inevitable this morning? If so, remember the five keys when facing giants. Key number one, don't grow your giants by feeding them your fears. Claim the promises of God. Key number two, choose the battles that are worth fighting. Don't draw a line in the sand on everything. Don't get sidetracked on fringe issues. Key number three, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Recount his goodness and his leading and his providence. Key number four, fight in your own armor. Be who God made you to be. And key number five, remember the battle is the Lord's. God can turn your defeats into victories. All odds were against Jesus too. He too was ridiculed and mocked. In the garden of Gethsemane, the giant seemed too big. On the cross, the pain and the emotion, the anguish seemed too much to bear. But Jesus realized the battle was not his, but God's. And so he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he hung his head and he died on that awful Friday that we call good. But in the apparent defeat, God brought an incredible victory. To Mary, the cross looked like a defeat. To Peter and the disciples, the cross looked like a defeat. But Jesus was not defeated on the cross, but rose again. In the cross, we find our greatest victory. In the cross, we find hope for a better tomorrow. In the cross, we have assurance that our eternal life is secure in Jesus Christ. He has secured our ultimate victory at Calvary. And he intercedes for us even now in the most holy place. Because Jesus is no longer dead, but he's alive. We serve a risen Savior. And he stands at the right hand of the Father. In the trials of your life, 
Do you desire God's peace? His assurance? His guiding hand? Perhaps you've been laboring on your own. Perhaps you've stayed up late at night searching for answers. Perhaps you've lost a lot of sleep worrying and surmising the worst case scenarios. Perhaps your proposed solutions dissolve like ropes of sand. If so, would you like to surrender your problems, your pains, your sorrows, your stress, your burdens, whatever giant in your life? Don't you want to give that over to Jesus today? Don't you want his peace and his assurance today? Don't you want to let him fight your battles? Because the battle truly is the Lord's. In the end, we know he wins. Your giant will not overtake you. Your giant will not have the last word. Your giant need not intimidate you because Jesus is alive and fighting for you and for me. Our ultimate good is secure in Christ, and we too can be conquerors through Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the countless times that we have gone into battle on our own strength. Lord, help us to humble ourselves today to take some lessons from a teenage boy and understand and recognize and realize that the battle belongs to the Lord. And whatever our situation, whatever it may be, we place it in your hands just now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.